I had so many women tell me that they had gone through friendship breakups that were as painful or more painful than their divorces, than any romantic relationship they'd ever ended. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I believe that stories save us, and that's why I've spent my life immersed in books. First as a writing professor, and now as an award-winning author who leads women's writing and wellness workshops and retreats. I find that no matter how zen we strive to be, life rarely goes as planned. But stories are our steadfast companions. And since the last few years have brought huge transitions to everyone, including me, I wanted to talk to other women who have lived real lives and have been audacious enough to share all the messy, joyous, complicated bits. I thought I could learn a thing or two from them about writing and healing and about, well, being human. And it's been one of the greatest thrills of my life. So join me for powerful conversations with today's top women writers and wellness experts who go beyond the surface level and into that deep, raw, honest place, the heart of the story. Hi, friends. Oh, I loved today's conversation, and I know that you are going to love it too. So today I am speaking with Laura Tremaine, the writer, podcaster, overall fabulous female. She has written Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First, and also The Life Council, which is about the 10 friends that every woman needs. And she is also the host of the podcast, 10 Things to Tell You. And the reason why I wanted her on the show so badly is because she talks candidly about friendships. And so many of us have had friendship changes in the last few years because of the pandemic. Either we became more distant from people or we got closer to those who were kind of in our trusted inner circle or friendships changed because of job changes and moves that were pandemic related. And then friendship changes simply because friendships change as we grow older and change ourselves. So uh, we got to talk all things friendship, but also she surprised and delighted me by her willingness to talk about writing, what it's like to write about real life people and still keep those friendships even after the book comes out and how to navigate the writing of people in a really sensitive, tender way so that the relationships stay well-preserved even while writing openly and honestly. It's an episode that will delight you as a woman, as a human, but also for the creatives out there who are curious about the behind the scenes of the book writing process. You're going to love it. My friends, you are in for a treat today because we are talking all about friendship and writing and podcasting. And I know these are some of your favorite subjects and also things you have questions on. And I couldn't think of a better person to join us than Laura Tremaine, who is a writer who talks about friendship and has a podcast. So welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about all of these things with you. Yeah. I was telling you a little bit before when I was really thinking about friendship in my own life and how much has changed in recent years, especially, I really was feeling this craving, this deep need to talk to someone else about friendship candidly, because there have been high highs and low lows in the last few years of friendship in my life. And then I'll, I, I secretly kind of talk to other women and I, I go, oh, they're experiencing it too. And then when I read your book, The Life Council, I was like, oh, thank goodness. Oh, it's not just me. <laughs> Everybody's experiencing these same things. So in order to dive in, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you started thinking about friendship and how it led to the writing about friendship. Well, it's funny that you say that you were glad to hear someone else talking about it because that is ultimately why I wrote the book, even though I had a lot of hesitations to write a book where I'm not like 
a typical expert. I felt ill-equipped because I'm not like a therapist or a deep researcher. I just wanted to talk about it, like you said. And so I finally ended up writing a book about it because I had been talking about it online for so long. So I feel like this journey for me started with my blog. I had a blog back in the day, didn't a mm -hmm. lot of us. And one of the things that I wrote about back then, and I started that blog in 2010. So this was over a decade ago. But at that time, I was a new mom. And I live in Los Angeles, where there's 10 million people, literally. And I was so lonely. Mm -hmm. And I could not figure out why in this you know, huge city and also with a new baby where everyone said, once you have kids, the mom friends will abound, you know, <laughs> like all these things that I thought were going to happen for me were not friendship wise. And I was really lonely. I'd grown up in a really small town. I had a lot of childhood and high school and college friends back in Oklahoma where I'm from. And here in California, I just could not figure it out. So I was blogging about that. I was writing about that some. And women were coming out of the woodwork to say, me too. They were also living in big cities or they were living even in their hometown or they've had to move around a lot. Whatever their life situation was, there were so many other adult women. I was like in my early 30s then who were saying that they also were a lot lonelier than they thought they would be. So I've been writing about that topic off and on for years and years. And I just felt like once I started my show, I have a podcast called 10 Things to Tell You that's about connection and it's about relationship. And every time I talked about actual friendship, women wanted to say more and more about that. And like you, like a lot of people, I've had friendship ups and downs. I felt like the pandemic really shuffled people's ideas of friendship or who they wanted to pour into or you know, that kind of thing. And so I just felt like this was a topic that I wanted to talk more about and read about. And there wasn't a ton out there about it. There's some academic books about it, like The Psychology of Friendship, which is so fascinating and really interesting. But I just wanted to talk about it like friend to friend, like, yeah. are y'all struggling with this? How is this going for you? You know, is this different than you thought it would be? Is this different than what it looked like in your mom's generation, like the, what we observed, like all these differences, yeah. which I think the internet has added to mm -hmm. how friendships look different now for better or worse. We're busier than ever. You know, there's just a lot of factors here and I just wanted to talk about it. And so when I want to talk about something, I write about it. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what were some of the things that helped you realize your structure. So it's 10 friends that every woman should have and, and not all at once. We don't need these 10 amazing friends all at once, but over the course of different times in our lives, these are 10 types of friends that are super helpful to have. How did you even stumble upon that realization? And then as a structure in the book as well? So the Life council idea, like having a life council, which is similar to a board of directors for a business, where mm -hmm. if you were starting a new business or you had a business, you'd want someone who is an expert in finance and someone who was a creative expert and someone who was, had a background in HR. I don't know. You would, mm -hmm. you would have different strengths on your board of directors. This is the idea behind a life council. Like you have different friends for different seasons or reasons, or, you know, that those relationships look different. And I'm trying to kind of debunk the myth that female friendship looks a certain way. I think mm -hmm. that we have been taught from our earliest days of learning about friends, you know, in kindergarten, we've mm -hmm. been taught that friendship looks a certain way. You're like all in your besties. You tell each other everything, you talk every day, you go on girls trips or girls nights, or we have this, these cultural ideas about friendships. And I think that this contributes to why we're feeling lonely is because if we don't have that exact archetype of friend, then we feel like we don't have any friends or we don't have anyone in our life that we could talk to on the regular or share our secrets or go to dinner with. Like yeah. if it's not a deep connection or if it's not super fun or if they wouldn't bring us soup when we're sick, then we don't have anyone. And that's yes. just, that's simply not true. Those are different roles. Someone who might plan a girl's night is maybe not the same person who's going to bring you soup when you're sick, is maybe not the person that you call in an emergency. Those can be three different people, three distinct relationships. And so I had to figure this out for myself. And then I wanted to share 
a way to think about it. I didn't come up with this concept. Actually, one of my friends came up with this concept or mentioned this concept one time in a circle. We were having like a circle time of friends I had met on the internet. These are internet friends, which I mm-hmm. write about in the book. And we're we're very different. The circle of friends was very different in personality. And she said, we are like a life council. And it was like mm-hmm. a light bulb moment for me. Because sitting in that circle of women, you know, you might connect more deeply than with one person than another, or mm-hmm. you might feel like, oh, this person is way different than I am. They're in a different life stage. Their kids are grown and I have toddlers. You know, what can we possibly connect on? So when she brought that up, and that was many years ago, that was in my blogging years, it was a light bulb moment for me and it stuck with me. It changed the way that I thought about friendship ultimately until I wanted to write about it. So that's where the structure came from. But if I can just take a writing structure tangent. Yes, please. (laughs) All the listeners are like, yes. (laughs) My first book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First, which kind of came out of my podcast, which has a prompt or a conversation starter every week. And so it's that in book form. Mm -hmm. And from a writing point of view, I structured it that way. I structured share your stuff with each chapter, like asked a question. And then I sort of explained what I meant by the question. And then in essay form, I wrote my own answer to the question, like Mm -hmm. as a personal essay. Yeah. Now, listen to me. That was a total cheat sheet. That was just a (laughs) cheat way (laughs) to write that book because we've all seen like books of essays, which is what I secretly wanted to write, but I didn't think I had a book of essays in me. I felt like I needed a cheat, honestly, like I needed a way to be able to share these stories. And so I sort of combined the gimmick of my podcast, which I don't mean gimmick in a bad way, but like the hook Mm -hmm. of my podcast with me wanting to write personal essays. And I just created this structure for share your stuff. Well, from a nonfiction point of view as a writer and nonfiction reader, I think it worked really well. Mm-hmm. It's not a totally teaching book, like a nonfiction book that has bullet points and sort of teaching, but nor is it solely a book of essays. Yeah. It's sort of a hybrid of those things. And even though I was doing it as an author to kind of like cheat the system, I mean, look, I'm being very frank here to get a book deal on the strength mm-hmm. of my podcast and be able to tell my stories in these essays. I just needed to make it work for myself, right? Like in a business way, in a personal way. And I was really happy with the way it turned out. Like I was like, oh, this is like a hybrid of genres. It seemed to work mm-hmm. for the reader. It really worked mm-hmm. for me as a writer, like sort of using my skill set as a podcaster and wanting to be an author. Like it just worked, even though I mm-hmm. I was doing it to help myself along, if you will. It really worked for me. And so when it came time to write The Life Council, I wanted to do something similar. And so obviously I wanted to explain the Life Council members that that was an easy part of, you know, section Mm -hmm. of the book. But I did the same thing uh, similarly is what I'm saying. So like I sort of cheated teaching and sharing. And this is not the type of book, I'm saying this part to writers, to people who Mm -hmm. listening who might be writers. This is not the type of book I thought I would ever write. I wanted to be a more like, intellectual typewriter (laughs) you know but this is actually the work that I'm doing and sometimes I think you have to follow the flow of what you're already good at or what's already working like if you have a way that you're sharing if you have a Substack or a social media or a podcast and that is really working for you then to try and like sit down and be Shakespeare like it's just not that was not going to be me like I had to kind of work with what, what I'm doing, you know, with what I'm already yes. currently doing. And it was humbling a little bit, like, honestly, because like I said, I, I thought I was going to write a different type of book. So it was mm-hmm. a little bit humbling. But then when I saw that the finished product really felt good to me and seemed to feel good to the reader, then I was like, okay, it does work to sort of follow your own flow instead of feel like a nonfiction book has to look like this or, you know, whatever ideas you have for your own becoming an author. So that's a tangent on friendship, but I just want to say that. It's so helpful. It's so helpful to hear because 
writers are always wondering how other writers come up with their ideas, their structures. I mean, structure, we could speak for days. This is the the mystery for every writer. How do I structure it? We feel like we can't really even move forward if we don't have the proper structure. But I feel so seen and understood in a way to speak with someone else for whom their podcast actually helped delineate the structure of their book. A couple of years ago, maybe I was listening to Emily P. Freeman's The Next Right Thing podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I realized she was talking about how the podcast helped her structure her book, The Next Right Thing. And I had this stack of essays that I'd been writing for three years or more, and they were about tons of different things. And I kept trying to put them into a book, but it felt like something was missing. And I'm like, what the heck? Meanwhile, I was doing this podcast, which I started, I don't know, nine months into the pandemic because I missed telling my stories out loud in Chicago where I used to live. It has a great live lit scene and I I miss telling my stories. So I started this podcast and I would first just share my writing, but then at the end, I would always turn it to the listener. And I would say, okay, what about you? How do you feel about this? And I would almost give meditative reflections at the end. And as soon as I started realizing, oh, the podcast structure that I use for the episodes could be in written form for the book, it suddenly unlocked the structure where each chapter was an essay and then prompts for the reader. And it became a guided journal. (laughs) You know, it's like part essay collection, part guided journal. But I bring it up only because I love speaking to another writer who it's like, where do we find our structures? Well, sometimes it is right in front of our noses (laughs) or our subject material is right in front of our noses. Or we think we're going to be this one type of writer, but we can't stop writing about this one subject. Mm -hmm. And we so often skirt all around the thing that's right in front of us. <laughs> it's so true. And also, you know, so I was saying that it worked for me because this is how I did yeah. my podcast and it was a sort of cheat for me as a writer. But I think the reason that it worked for the reader is because readers were taking in information differently. So mm-hmm. we're used to reading a social media caption and getting a point and a story in like 100 words, Right those aren't all good things. I think that the internet has shortened our attention span, but just being honest from the business perspective of readers read differently than they used to. And so if we are catering to the way that people are reading, because it works for us also as writers, that's okay. It -hmm. might not be what our college professor taught us was, you know, correct (laughs) structure, or it might not be like the prestige that I thought I was going to write, but it, worked for the way I was creating in general. And it worked for the reader because they were used to hearing me create that way. I don't think we have to necessarily shy away from that. And also because I was blogging for a long time, I was writing for an audience from the get-go, which again, pros and cons to that, because I think there is something to be said for working on something quietly, you know, Mm -hmm. alone for Mm -hmm. a while before you turn it out to the world. But because I started as a blogger, I was writing and getting immediate feedback right away which had some real benefits, right? Like I could see what was landing and yes. what wasn't. When I decided to close my blog after a, you know years and years, but blogging changed and personal blogging was fading as social media was rising. And so I decided to close my blog and I then moved to podcasting. Well, so then I had to communicate well and you know tell a story, make a point on a microphone When I went back to actually writing, my writing was so much stronger Mm. by changing mediums, you know, by Mm. using my literal voice, by talking and learning to storytell that way and taking a break from writing. When I came back to the page, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm better at this now. Even though I had taken a break, I hadn't actually written in years. Mm -hmm. I had been communicating. I had been on my podcast. I had been on social media writing a little bit, you know, like landing a good caption, that is a skill set. Yes. I mean, I'm being serious. And so when you sit down to write longer form or when you sit down to write at all, using these other mediums can really strengthen your skills. And so I always want to like tell writers that like, don't be afraid to try podcasting, to try Instagram live, to try, you know, to just try to communicate in a different way for a little bit. It's not quitting. It's not 
giving up. It's not giving into the machine. It can all strengthen ultimately your writing skills. Yeah. Agreed. Well, because with podcasting, there's this immediate built-in audience. You're thinking of who you're speaking to constantly, and that only helps refine your writing skills. And I love just the idea of trying the different media. When I was in the middle of trying to figure out this essay collection, I took a painting retreat. I went on a painting retreat. Mm -hmm. I'm not a painter. (laughs) at all. But there's a wonderful woman named Flora Boley who leads these painting retreats. And I just thought, what the heck? And I need some time by myself. So I went to Omega and did this thing and it opened up worlds for my writing and my creativity. It like helped me feel unstuck and unblocked. And I highly recommend any of us switching to a different media for a little bit and just see what happens. So you started writing this. How did you figure out what 10 friends every woman needs? And maybe you can share what they are. Well, I basically, I made them up, by the way. So I, <laughs> yeah. this is not like something that I was deeply researched for decades or anything like that. I sat on my floor. Speaking of Emily P. Freeman, she teaches how to kind of outline your book or start this outline mm-hmm. process with note cards. I learned yeah. this from her. So I sat down at my lake house and I just wrote on note cards all the different types of friends I have had. Now, whether they were meaningful or not, whether I thought I could make a chapter out of them or not, it didn't matter. This was the initial brainstorming session. I did this for Share Your Stuff also, also taught by Emily. Mm -hmm. So I just wrote on each note card, each different type of friend. And I started from childhood, you know, like a neighborhood friend, a sleepover friend, a church friend a friend from sports or all the things, a family friend, like all these different things. I just wrote all these notes for the different types of people. And I went all the way through my life. Wow. Some of them, you know, obviously came around a theme. You know, there were certain themes of, of why I even remembered this person to write them down on the note card. It was different levels of connection. Sometimes it was just proximity. We were in the same class. We were in the same neighborhood. Sometimes it was a deeply held connection you know, we had like a real spark of chemistry with a friend that can't really be replicated. Sometimes it was shared interest. Sometimes it was just family type of connection, all the different things. I wrote them all down and then I sort of grouped them based on their commonality or or why it was meaningful to me. A lot of them got sort of pushed out, sort of started to narrow down. And I just started to see what mattered. And a lot of the 10 friends will be familiar to listeners or, or if you know if you're reading an old friend there's a clear value in, in an old friend a new friend I really champion the new friend that's my favorite friend that I write about in the book because I think that old friends get all the glory but new friends there's something really amazing and special about new friends who are meeting us and liking us with who we have become I think yeah. there's a lot of power in that and then I started to write about things like the battle buddy, someone who's going through something with you. I started writing about the fellow obsessive. This <laughs> is a real fan favorite because it's just someone who is obsessed with the same thing you are obsessed with. This might be a friend you make on the internet. You know, this might not be someone that you that knows anything else about the rest of your life, but they're also obsessed with The Bachelor or some band or your <laughs> Peloton or whatever you're obsessed with, a writing friend. You don't even talk personally. You just geek out over this thing that you both love. That's a great type of friend. I started writing about the password protector, who is just someone who has your literal or metaphorical passwords in an emergency, basically someone who you're fine if they just saw your most disorganized closet, whatever you have on your computer, you know, they could open your phone. You wouldn't be worried what's on your camera roll with them, like someone that you could <laughs> trust with your secrets or your messiness or whatever, and you really trust them. So there's a mentor. There's like these 10 friends. You're not going to have all of them at every stage of your life. You're not always going to have a business bestie, which is one of the friends, if you aren't working in a traditional role. You know, you're not always going to have a daily duty friend. The daily duty friend is the first one I write about in the book. And I did not have a daily duty friend until I was 40 years old. (laughs) And it's one of the things that trips you up because I thought, I thought all friends were supposed to be daily duty friends. And one of the reasons that I felt lonely, I think is because I didn't have one until I was 40. And that friend 
was part of my wider friend group, but she became a daily duty friend because our kids were in the same sport. And mm-hmm. so we carpooled three times a week to a club sport. Well, that mm-hmm. means we talked every single day, like who's getting the kids? What are you doing for dinner? Whose turn is it? What's the practice schedule? I don't know. We talked kind of about logistics every single day. Mm-hmm. And that speaking every day led to a deeper connection because she was the only person in my life who knew like everything that was happening <laughs> yeah. because of the logistics piece of like, well, my husband's out of town and I have this and my other kid has this. She was the only person that held all of that information. And then I held it for her also. That was a daily duty friend. Now it happened that she and I had a deep loving connection, but if she hadn't, if she had just been a carpool friend, but yet again, knew every single thing about my daily schedule, <laughs> that is an intimacy with a person that we sometimes dismiss of like, well, she's not really my friend. She's like my carpool person. And we're not letting ourselves think about like, what does it mean to share family logistics with someone? Okay. So maybe you're not soulmates, but that is an intimacy. And like recognizing that as the people in our life that we can call when we need something really matters. And it's not every friend is a soul sister, which is one of the friends. Not every friend is an old friend that knows your whole past. There are so many different types of friends. And I just wrote about the ones that have mattered to me, hoping that that would resonate with the reader. Mm-hmm. And it does. And it did. You know, when I was reading it for the first time, I was thinking about, yeah, there's so much joy in the old friends who know you when you were 17 and reckless. And then there is a beauty in the new friends who know you at 40 when maybe you have your stuff together a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) And you've gained some wisdom. (laughs) Yeah. And also the thing about old friends and new friends, this one is sort of the most recognizable to everyone, right? An old friend or a new friend is that old friends, and I consider myself an old friend, actually, people always ask me, what's my primary role. Mm -hmm. And it is an old friend, I think, because of the way I grew up in a small town. And I've kept up with a lot of my oldest, oldest friends who've known me since elementary school. So I have deep, dear friends like that. And they are wonderful. And you cannot replicate that. And also one of the hangups sometimes with old friends is that they don't let you change. Mm -hmm. They hold you to an old standard or to who you were. Now, sometimes that's very grounding. I have had times in my life where people who knew me when I was young, they were they were holding on to me to not let me change in a bad way, right? Like that mm-hmm. and that was grounding and amazing. But there are also times in our life when we need friends who they don't know anything about our past because we have changed and we want to be able to change. When I started to make some new friends, and I write about this in the book, when my kids started a new elementary school and I finally started to have the mom friends I'd always envisioned. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'd been a mom at that point for eight years or whatever. Yeah. I finally started to make these new friends and they were meeting me with where I was at 40 and they liked me. Mm-hmm. And if I said something to them, let's say, because my politics have changed, the way I view faith has changed, the way that I think about Mm -hmm. the way I feed my family. It doesn't matter whatever ways in which you've changed. If I said something to them, they just accepted it because they were new friends. They're like, oh yeah, that's who you are. Mm -hmm. They weren't like, well, you used to say this. (laughs) And in fact, if I said something to them, like, you know, I used to be like this, Mm -hmm. they would be like, well, that's weird. They can't even picture it. Because they're meeting this newest version of myself. And most of us have fought pretty hard to become the most recent version of ourselves. And that is beautiful. It doesn't take away from the old friends. You need some grounding and you also need some freedom. And I feel like those are represented in old friends and new friends. Oh, it's so true. I moved about a year ago. So I've been making a lot of new friends. And I have a dear friend now who lives nearby and we go for walks every Sunday morning together. And one of the Sunday mornings, my mom was visiting from Chicago and the three of us walked together. And my mom decided to talk about you know, my my wild teenage days and my, my party college girl days. And my new friend was like, Excuse them all. <laughs> Not judging at all, but just like who? I can't even picture that. You go to bed at nine thirty. You know? 
<laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I forget that, you know, there's a whole world that I've moved beyond that you don't know about. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you want people to know that about you. Like you feel like you want them to know the fullness of your past, right? Like yeah. how far you've come. And that's yeah. really fun. And sometimes you're like, you know, it'd be cool if you never knew that about me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I'm thinking about this. And what I loved when I was reading your book is just thinking about how it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Each friend can play a separate role. And it's not like, oh, well, because the daily duty friend isn't like my password protector friend, then we can't be friend. You know, it's like each person can serve a purpose. And I think all of us innately know this, even when I describe my friends to other people, I'll say, oh, she's my emotional confidant friend. Like we could talk forever about feelings. Oh, that person is my adventurous girlfriend. If we go on a trip together, we're going to have so much fun. So we kind of automatically already start to categorize a little bit, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Everyone can serve a purpose. So when you were writing this and writing about these 10 different types of friends, which part felt the most vulnerable for you as a writer, as the author? Well, there are definitely pros and cons to writing about real life people. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt a little nervous writing about friends in a way that, and I tried not to make it come off this way, but from the surface level of the book structure, I'm basically like categorizing my friends. Mm -hmm. When the truth is a lot of our friends cross over, you might Mm -hmm. have an old friend who's also a password protector, who's also a soul sister. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is natural and makes sense. And so I really had to sort of thread the needle of honoring this person that I was writing about, but also not like, you know, making her too narrow, too flat of a character. You're you're not like really sort of seeing that she's more than just a fun friend. You know, Mm -hmm. there is a, I call it a yes friend in the book, but it's kind of like a fun friend. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, my friend Tracy that I write about in that book, that she understands that she's more than just the fun friend to me. But the point that I'm making is that you can have a friend that is just a fun friend. Mm -hmm. I do have friends that are just fun friends. I didn't write about them in the book. You know, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. maybe necessarily write about acquaintances in that way. So from a personal standpoint, it's relational. I mean, it's I'm writing about friends that that I want to make sure that they felt honored, but also not like put in a box or not like Mm -hmm. ranked in some way. There is like Mm. sort of an inherent ranking. I don't like that word at all, but like where you're like, well, the soul sister carries more weight than the yes friend, let's just Mm. say. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to be the case in my actual real life relationships that I was writing. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So that just took a lot of, you know, mindfulness in the words that I used and relationship tending outside of the writing process and just my own like sort of faith and trust in not only my real life friends who I was writing about, but also in the reader, you know, that people can think in complicated and nuanced ways, even though this isn't like world's deepest book or anything, but like that people would get it basically. Mm -hmm. That was probably the most vulnerable thing to me. I was pretty weepy about it. I mean, also, you know, you're writing about some friends and not about others. Mm. You know, I just tried to be very conscious of these relationships and every word about another person. In the other sections of the book, I write about friendship philosophies or I write about some of my own stumbles or whatever. And I could maybe be a little more like just sort of free and really write for myself. But when I was writing about someone else, you have to be very mindful of every word, really. Mm-hmm. And as you were doing it, were you talking to the friend or did they see the draft like towards the end before publication? Or did you just say, hey, I'm mentioning you. It's all good. You'll read it when it comes out. How do you how did you deal with that? So I definitely did not tell them about it before I wrote it. That mm-hmm. would have really messed up my own process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wrote it. I wrote the whole thing and I wrote it. I went through, you know, rounds with the editor and everything. Like I basically got to the 90% mark before I told my friends and asked if they wanted me to change their name or not. Mm -hmm. So 
I didn't write anything in the book that was, you know, like scandalous or anything, you know, right, like anything right, right, that would right. be like yeah. legal hot water or something, or yes. something like that. Yes. So it was more, I said to each friend, and they knew I was writing a book about friendship. And some of them, I think, knew that I was probably writing about them. I mean, they're my dear friends. Maybe I casually said things. They also, yeah. you know, knew I had written Share Your Stuff. So it wasn't, wasn't like, surprise, I wrote a book and you're in it. Like, <laughs> yeah, most of these people maybe suspected. And so by the time I got to this place, this like sort of 90% place, I said, I've written about you in this way. Like I told them what chapter they were in, what I said, you can read it ahead of time and tell me if you have any notes or if you want me to change your name or change details or whatever. Like I am happy to do that, but I really wanted to present to them. Like it wasn't collaborative. Like I really wanted to present to them. Like I wrote this thing. Mm -hmm. You now get to choose if you stay anonymous in it or not. And I got all mixed reactions. So there's, I, there's 10 friends in the book, but I write about more than 10 people because mm -hmm. some chapters have a few people mentioned or whatever. Now, yeah. there are some people who are not in my life at all anymore. And I wrote about them in the book and I just changed their names and identifying details. Like I just wrote about them. Yeah. I made that choice for them. Yeah. But for the people that I was still in relationship with, I got mixed reactions. So nothing bad, but there were some people who did want to read it ahead of time. They did not want to read it on publication day. Don't blame uh -huh. them a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had multiple friends who said, and this is the biggest, this was the biggest compliment ever, even though I don't judge any reaction to this, but they said, I trust you completely. Mm. I don't need to read it. You don't need to change my name. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Now they were saying that based not only on our friendship, but on 12 years of reading the way that I write about people yeah. online or the way that I speak about people in podcasts in my real life, like in the way that I wrote about friends and share your stuff. So it wasn't just pure trust in my heart. You know, <laughs> it was also, they know how I do this kind of yeah. and the care that I approach it. And so I think it was a compliment that was also based in a history of, I trust you, but it was also like, it kind of brings tears to my eyes, that reaction of just like, I know that you did our friendship justice. Like I didn't mm. even hesitate. Mm. The friends that did want to hear it or read it ahead of time, lots of people have lots of valid reasons for that. So I didn't judge that at all. No. I only had a few people ask, oh, can you just change this one small sort of detail or moment? Nobody asked to change their name in the live council. I did have someone request I change their name and share your stuff, mm -hmm. which I did gladly. Mm -hmm. Those are different types of stories. So it was a, a little bit of a yeah. different situation. Yeah. Those are much, you know, more vulnerable stories in that book. So that was it. People are curious, like how my friends took it. But I've also always joked that if you are friends with me, <laughs> I might end up talking about you on my show. I might, you might end up in an Instagram caption. <laughs> um, it's a thing. I mean, I guess for some people that might really actually be a thing and they don't, they might not want to be friends with me, but I don't know. It's sort of just like if you have a million kids and you're like, yeah, if you're going to come hang out at my house, like we're going to have, we have, I have a lot of kids here. <laughs> it's part of the thing. Part of being friends with me is like, if you're going to be friends with me, you're probably going to show up on Instagram. I don't know what to tell you. It's a silent agreement. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I do think people are, are so curious because I wrote an infertility memoir. And of course, the immediate reaction when the book came out wasn't even as much about the story itself, but it was like, how'd your husband feel about that? <laughs> right. And mm -hmm. um, I talk about my mom in the book quite a lot. And how did your mom react? You know, and so there is this deep desire for writers to know how do I navigate this territory if I'm writing creative nonfiction, if the people I'm writing about are alive and I cherish my relationship with them. So I'm so glad that you shared that because so many people, that's what kind of like stops them in creative nonfiction because they're worried about writing about real life people. It's actually a really valid thing. I mean, I'm not going to lie mm -hmm. that it hasn't been all perfect in roses. Like mm -hmm. it has, not with my books as much, but just talking about it online or, or on a podcast or something, it hasn't always been 
perfection. And I actually don't love the Anne Lamott quote that is so popular. And I love her. She's a, <laughs> she's a game changer. But, you know, she has the quote of like, if people didn't want you to write about them, they should have acted better. Or what's mm-hmm. the difference? It's the quote. Don't, that's like don't that. be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, it's I, Yeah, it's like if you want it, if people wanted you to write about them warmly, they should have acted better. Kind right. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that's a funny quote. But mm-hmm. In real life, you have to be in relationship with these people yes. off the page. Yes. And you have to think about the repercussions of if your children read it, whatever the story is, like the, there are ripples to the things that we share. And I say that as someone whose whole message is to share your stuff. I do think there are ways, and I try to model ways to do it that are still respectful, that are still, you know, unless unless disrespect is intended. Yeah. But it's not easy and it's not cut and dry as the Anne Lamott quote is. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely something to think about. I have often wished that I wrote anonymously Mm -hmm. and I never blamed some of the mommy bloggers. This was a big conversation during the blogging years who blogged anonymously, Mm -hmm. you know, they changed names or whatever that they did. I get that. I don't think that's a cop-out. I think it is very hard to share, honestly, in a nonfiction way about relationships. The people who do it well, I absolutely commend them. Like mm-hmm. Aggie Smith's divorce memoirs out this oh, year. Oh my gosh. It's a, I've read it three times. Oh, I mean, yeah. when you read something like that, it just will take your breath away. Like you're just like, yeah. wow, like she did really do this so well. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't know her, but I bet that there was stuff behind the scenes Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful for the people who share like that. They just take one for the team. Basically, they take the repercussions to be able to share their story, which helps the rest of us. Mm -hmm. But it's not it should not be taken lightly. It actually seems really hard. I also understand why people who write memoirs or write Mm -hmm. certain things after someone has died. Mm -hmm. I get that. It's one of the main things that has made me want to write fiction. I have no desire to write fiction, but for that I could, in some ways, write completely honestly. I'll tell you that I have had people ask me to change things. This was more and share your stuff. That the few things that they wanted me to change, I was fine with it. I understood the request. And also, I thought, well, I would have written this differently mm-hmm. if I knew that you were going to ask to change your name or change this particular part of the story, I literally would have written this whole thing differently. Mm -hmm. So that's an argument for maybe getting the permission first before you write it. Because if I'd known that they wanted me to change their name, I really truly would have written it differently. But also, I don't know if that's the right vibe either. Like I'm kind of fine with the way I did it with I wrote it the way that felt the most respectful and a name change affects no Mm -hmm. one. The reader doesn't even know the name has been changed. You know what I mean? So changing the name at the request of the person affects no one but me, basically the writer who now has some feelings about it, but in the big picture of it's fine. Exactly. I know when I teach writing workshops, in particular creative nonfiction, I talk a lot about not writing out of revenge. And so writing with dimensionality so that no one is painted completely evil or completely perfect. You know, we are humans. I think that helps to look at it from that lens, because when we write with dimensionality and see a story from all angles, it creates empathy. It takes that ickiness away when you know that you're reading something that like someone's like, I'm going to get this person on the page. (laughs) You you feel that and it feels, it feels very icky. And it's interesting because people will pick out a detail. If you show them your manuscript, they'll pick out a detail you you had no idea. It didn't even matter to you, but to them it matters. So when I gave my manuscript, my infertility book manuscript to my mom to read before kind of the final, final, it goes deep into our relationship, our ups and downs. And I asked her to read it. And then I asked her if we could have a conversation just about anything it brought up, but I did not offer right off the bat to change anything. Because similar to you, I wanted to finalize the whole thing and kind of have it set in stone before I heard anything about it. And so she read it, it brought up a lot of emotions, good and hard. And um, then we went for a walk together and she said, uh, we talked about a lot of deep stuff, but then she said, 
So you remember the scene where you wrote about me when I was a teenager and I stole that girl Mary's necklace? This was like two sentences in the book. And I was like, barely, I don't know. I think I was trying to show that you were like me, a rebellious teenager, and then you changed with time. And she was like, well, I have to say, and she got kind of like, I, I did not steal that necklace. I simply took it and never gave it back. <laughs> I was like, pure definition of stealing mom, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, you don't even know what people will react to. Well, ugh, I, I, I want to lead like a, a writing class with you because you could talk about so much stuff. I love picking your brain about this, but cognizant. Oh, I would love to do that actually <laughs> on this topic yes. because my parents also with my first yeah. book, which has more stuff about my childhood and stuff in it, my parents, I recorded a episode with them that they were like they didn't say I had gotten it wrong mm -hmm. but they were like this is not how we remember it <laughs> <laughs> and I was like okay well fair I mean you're not like accusing me of like making it up or whatever but also this is how I remember it. And as a, I'm the one with the pen, uh -huh. so I'm going to write it the way I remember it. You are welcome. And again, these aren't like scandals or anything that right, would get right, anyone yeah. into like legal problem or anything. But if people in your life react with that is not how I remember it, that's a valid way to react. And also there's nothing to do <laughs> ab about that. <laughs> You're like, okay, well. We remember it yeah. differently. People think that feedback requires fixing and it does not always require that. Feedback can simply be feelings that exist alongside other people's feelings. It doesn't always require action. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it because when I presented in the Life Council even, which are all like glowing stories, I'm writing about my literal friends. I was not asking, how do you feel about what mm -hmm. I wrote? I was asking, do you want me to change your name mm -hmm. or, or not? Mm -hmm. This is what I wrote. You get to decide if you stay anonymous or not. That's really the only thing you get to decide. Mm -hmm. The only person that I did seek more permission from, and not feedback, she didn't read it ahead of time, but more permission for me to at least to even tell the story was I start the story off with a friend that I had an enormous rift with. Like we, we almost had a friendship breakup. That story is very tender to both of us. And also it was going to affect, you know, me writing about it. I wanted to make sure it wasn't going to affect our friendship going forward, yeah. writing about this rift. And so I did seek permission from her to even tell the story at all, which she gave unequivocally and without needing to read it first or anything. She was one of the people who was like, I totally trust the way you mm -hmm. will write about this. And that felt so good to me because we had come through a rift and she was trusting me and she was letting me tell the story. So I do think I'm not 100% the best person to speak about because I'm not writing about really hard yeah. things. I think this is a different conversation if you're writing about really difficult things, which obviously a lot of people do, in how that's going to affect other people. But both of my books are mostly paint everybody great except for me. <laughs> And sometimes that's the best kind of trick for approaching yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, one last thing I want to end on is what you brought up, which is the rift. And this is where I think so many of us women uh, feel very tender because we've dealt with a friendship breakup. We've dealt with friendship ghosting. We've dealt with deep feelings of not belonging, not getting invited to something. and so. That wound is deep and not one that's given much sight or discussion. So I'd love any thoughts just about the wounds of friendship and maybe how to heal and or repair. Okay, this is such a big I topic. Know. I start the book off with a friendship misunderstanding that happened during the pandemic, which I also think happened to a lot of us. We were very hurt by words posted online, or in my case, it was on a group text. I said something kind of carelessly, like I was multitasking and wasn't thinking about it too deeply, but it was on a big group text and it really hurt someone's feelings enough so that she wanted to end the friendship. And it was pandemic related. It was 
a time when we were all extra sensitive, everything felt outsized. I think if we had been in a normal day, mm-hmm. I could have apologized because I still hurt her feelings and we would have moved forward. It wouldn't have felt like life or death, you know? Yeah. And I think that this is relatable to a lot of people that like things went sideways during those few years. And even still, like maybe politically or maybe having to do with lockdown, all the things. And I start the book off with that because I want people to know that this is not a book coming from a place of expertise. This is a book coming from, I've messed up, you Mm -hmm. guys, (laughs) and here Mm -hmm. I go. And so I start the book off that way. Now, spoiler, we do mend that friendship, but it takes some real effort. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere in the book, I write about the empty chair, and this goes more to the heart of your question in that. On our life council, where there's where we people are seated on a metaphorical life council, many of us have an empty chair where a friend used to be there and is not. Friendship breakups are so common. Sometimes they're ghostings and fade outs, but but more often the more painful ones are like truly like we are no longer friends. We've had an actual rift. We are no longer friends, or things will never be the mm-hmm. same. And I've talked to so many women about this over the years. And I've gone through my own. I went through the loss of a best friend, like a breakup with one of my best friends. It was enormously painful. And I didn't talk about it for years. When I did start talking about it, I had so many women tell me that they had gone through friendship breakups that were as painful or more painful than their divorces, Mm -hmm. than any romantic relationship they'd ever ended. They still think about their ex-best friend every day they aren't sure what went wrong they wish they could repair it it has changed their memories of the past you know it makes everything painful and so when I was going to write a book about friendship I was like we have to talk about this because culture does not give any credence to a friendship breakup when you go through a romantic breakup everyone is like oh stay in bed eat all the ice cream (laughs) go find yourself in the desert I don't know like we have all these ways that we're like, please mend your broken heart from this romantic breakup. When we have a friendship breakup, the general consensus is just like, well, I mean, just find another friend. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of people out there. Don't you know other Mm -hmm. people? Or just like, oh, friendships for a season. Oh, well, like nobody is seeing how devastating it can be. And so I wanted to give like the friendship breakup kind of a point of reverence on the life council. Because women don't really talk about this. And we there's some reasons we don't talk about it. One is the culture thing I just said. The other reason I think is because we're almost scared it's like contagious. Yeah. It's almost like if you start to talk about that your friendship ended, I have to face the fact that my friendship ended that I've sort of been ignoring or have tried to talk myself out of that it's a big deal or have spent years justifying how stupid she was. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we would have to really face our stuff. And or there's this stigma where it's like, if I share that a friend and I broke up, then the new friend could be like, well, what's wrong with, is there something I should be nervous about? You know? <laughs> yes. Or we decide in ourselves that we're unlikable. Uh-huh. So many women that I know who are claiming loneliness, uh-huh. a starting point is a friendship ending. Mm -hmm. And so they are scared to put themselves out there. Again, like dating, when you just get devastated in a breakup, it's hard to date. You're scared it's going to happen again. And rightfully so, but we do this with friends too. And it, it makes us feel lonely or unlikable, or we don't want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to be too vulnerable with a new friend. We have secret fears that it's all our fault and all these things. And we don't talk about any of it. And I wanted women grown adult woman to be able to talk about this because I think we think it's like immature or juvenile Mm -hmm. or drama Mm -hmm. or some kind of thing that we're like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, we're above all that. Mm -hmm. No one is above a relationship that you cared about ending being hurt Mm -hmm. by that. I mean, that's just hurtful. It's so complicated, but I really wanted to give a whole spot for it in the life council, which I did. I do try to turn it towards the end, and this matters to me, is that if you have an empty chair, I call it the empty chair in the book, if you have an empty chair on your life council that was previously occupied, leaving it open sort of metaphorically and energetically allows new people to come into your life. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like leaving a chair open 
for the next, it might not be the next best friend, but just for someone to come and sit in that seat. A lot of us have closed circles. You know, Glennon Doyle talks about standing in a horseshoe instead of in a closed circle. And a lot of us have closed circles because we have past hurts or because we don't like the effort of making a new friend is (laughs) a lot or we're already too busy or we just like our group the way we like our group or whatever. We have these sort of closed circles. Having an empty chair in your life council can be sad because it, it means a friendship ended. It can also be like leaving the light on for the next friend to have a seat. And if we aren't open-hearted like that, if we aren't open to the people, the new people that can come into our life and change our life, then we are going to end up lonely. We are going to end up stuck and unable to change. We are, you know, we should always have sort of an open spot in our life, if you will, a blank space if you're a Taylor <laughs> Yes. I love that. I love the idea of the empty chair because it acknowledges the pain, but it also provides hope and openness. And I'll never forget when I was talking to my mom about how friendships had morphed during the pandemic. And I was about to move from Chicago to this beach town in Florida where we live now. I was nervous. I was scared. I was feeling really lonely. And I was complaining that I hadn't been invited to something I would typically be invited to because friendships had morphed over the pandemic. And she said, Nadine, if you want to be invited, you have to be an inviter. And I was like, Mm. oh my God. I mean, it just stuck with me because I was so used to sitting back and receiving an invitation that I had not taken that proactive step in a really long time. And so, Mm -hmm. man, did I, I got on the inviter train and I was just like, I'm going to invite everyone, (laughs) you know, but just having that mindset when I moved was helpful because where I might usually sit and wait for a new person I had met to text me or invite me, I was like, hi, it was great meeting you. Do you want to go play pickleball? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to paddleboard? You know, just anything. And it was so vulnerable, but so helpful because most people, all people at this point have said yes. So... (laughs) Yeah, but it's hard. It's actually hard to do that, especially if you're coming from a friendship group where someone else was really the ringleader or someone else was kind of the social calendar planner. A lot of us have a friend like that. My friend Tracy that I already mentioned, she is that person. And it kind of makes us lazy in a way of like, well, Tracy's going to put together the next girl's night the next party, the next trip. like, And I'll always say yes. I try to be a yes friend to her. I always say yes to reward the fact that she's always the planner. But if you don't have that or you're starting somewhere new, then you have to be the one that puts it out there. And one of the things that I write about in the book also, if you are putting it out there and you're trying to make new friends or whatever, to just hold it a little bit loosely. Like don't go to that pickleball date thinking that this is going to be your new best best friend. You just can't do that. It's like going on a romantic date and hoping that this is going to be the one. You know, it's just, it gives off sort of a, it's not the right attractor vibe. (laughs) A desperation, a a scent of desperation. (laughs) Yes. You just got to hold it loosely and be like, well, that was fun. I may never see that person again, or we didn't necessarily click, but you know, I tried, I had a good couple hours, like it was fine. Like holding it all a little loosely, I think is helpful for everyone. Yes. Yes. And I, I have found that the more I've invited, the less pressure I put on a single invitation because it's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to invite that person to this, this person to that. If one of these things works out well, cool, but yeah. there's, there's less pressure. Well, I could talk to you forever and ever about know, writing so and fun. friends, um, but maybe you can tell people where to find you if they don't already know. Uh, my favorite place online is Instagram. I'm at laura.tremaine there. But you can find my podcast and things to tell you or any of the things that I do at lauratremaine.com. My books, all the things. So we have Share Your Stuff. I'll go first. And then we have the Life Council and the podcast is 10 Things to Tell You. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Laura. This was amazing. This is so fun. I truly could have talked to her for many, many hours about so many things. And I truly valued her honesty, her willingness to open up about when there have been friendship rifts and when she herself was part of that rift and about the writing process. I I just think that you can fully 
see her honest, candid, um, human presence in all that she does, whether it's her writing or her podcasting or conversations like this, you know that you're going to get a an honest and open conversation. And I deeply appreciated that. So please check out all things Laura Tremaine, share the episode with a friend, right? And tag both of us, laura.tremaine on Instagram. And I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone on Instagram as well. Thank you to my friend, producer, Michelle Rado. You are many of those categories, my friend, that Laura talked about. A soul sister for sure and many other things. So remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week. 